Um, I think there may, there we go. Just wanted to check I had the slides up on the screen before I got started. Um, what an amazing sermon series it's been over the last three weeks. I think we're halfway through now and there's another two to three sermons, three sermons to go, looking about how we engage with the poor around us uh, in the world and also more locally as well. Uh, personally, I've been incredibly challenged, as I'm sure many of you have been as well. Last week, the altar call was basically, you know, if you really want this, but you're struggling, come up the front. And I was like, yes, that is me. Um, I just want to give a really quick recap of what both Tim and Lydia have covered before I start to dig a little bit further into this topic as well. So Tim really set up this topic for us brilliantly, looking at the poor today and how our hearts need to be soft as we ask who is our neighbor and be like the Good Samaritan and going out of our way really and reaching out a hand when we see someone in need. Lydia really continued that last week and actually looked at our church and gave us the challenge, can we be more New Testament church? Can we actually see the church as something that can go above and beyond social action and fill a gap in society to be really radical in that? And I really loved a word that she said, and I'm going to come back to her a couple of times in this sermon, about who could be the unlikely friend that we make, who maybe isn't someone that we would naturally connect with, but we really go out of our way to make that relationship a reality. So I'm going to dig into um, tonight two themes in particular. One of those themes is awareness. So kind of thinking around what's going on in our brains. How do we start to think through some of our thought patterns and target potentially where we've held a little bit of bias, particularly in relation to um, the community that we exist in. The second thing I'm going to look at a bit later in the sermon is more the action. How do we then put that into practice and actually get out into our community and be relevant and be there? Um, you guys know one of our priorities for this year is to radically engage our local community. Um, and that's really the heart of this sermon tonight. So let's get started. If you'd like to turn to your Bibles to page um, 1075 in the Green Bibles, and that's Romans 12. So do not, oh sorry, I'm actually jumping ahead a little bit. Um, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, the good, pleasing, and perfect will. So just to read that last bit again, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that's what we're going to start this sermon looking at, that idea of what's happening inside our minds and how we can be a bit cognizant of that. Um, time and time again in the Bible, we read that a lot of our actions and what we do, I guess, outwardly comes from within, what we think about, what we ponder on. In another place in scripture, we're told to hold every thought captive to Christ, which is quite a big ask, actually, but I really love the visual way of kind of, you know, grappling with that verse, almost sort of seeing what's going on in your brain, and then being like, oh, hang on a sec, that was not a very nice thing to think, and kind of almost being very um, proactive in addressing that. 
So tonight we're going to spend a lot of time looking at what goes on in our minds. And in particular, I want to look at the topic of unconscious bias and some of the um, assumptions that we might make around um, people that are slightly different to us and actually just about each other more generally as well. So I wonder if anyone here tonight has heard of something called unconscious bias. Maybe a little, little show of hands. Oh, many. Anyone who's in the corporate world or in the kind of workplace at the moment probably has heard it sort of bandied around because it's sort of the flavor of the month when you do any sort of training. There's lots around unconscious bias. But I think it's a really interesting topic and one that Tim in particular was really keen to look at tonight. And um, just before I dive into it, I would say a lot of us have been really looking at this um, great book by Martin Charlesworth and Natalie Williams called A Church for the Poor. I really recommend you get your hands on it if you haven't already. And um, the reason why unconscious bias and just natural bias sort of came up as a topic is one of the authors, Natalie Williams, was actually raised in um, quite an um, underprivileged family. She was the first in her family for generations to go to university. And she found as she became a Christian and sort of entered into more, I suppose, a middle class environment, there were loads of things that were just assumed about her and what she knew and what she didn't know that she found very challenging, um, including potentially going to someone's house for dinner. Uh, she didn't know that it was polite to bring a bottle of wine. Uh, she didn't know if dishes were sort of served with you know, many different kind of items what to do, should she take one, should she take another, like it just was totally foreign for her. So I really recommend checking out this book because it looks at these themes in a lot more detail. But going back to our definition of unconscious bias, sorry I have way too much collateral up here, I'm sort of like, I feel like Tetris. But um, if, you, if you look up at the screen, you'll see a definition. So unconscious bias is when our background, our experiences, our stereotypes and cultural context have an impact on our decisions and our actions without us even realizing. Now, I think that's a really important bit, the kind of unconscious side of unconscious bias, that we make these snap decisions, these snap um, sort of assumptions or reactions based on what we believe about someone or something. I, I've got many examples of this in my life. I wanna just share two very brief ones. Uh, one is many, many years ago when I was just growing up in Australia. Um, I should have said it up front, I'm from Sydney. And we had my grandma, who was British, staying with us. Now, at the time, I was about maybe eight or ten years old, and I didn't really have a relationship with God. But my sister certainly did. She had an incredible faith and really was keen to go to church every Sunday and really worship this God that she knew. Uh, my grandma, who was staying with us, was a Catholic. And on Sunday, we had a little bit of a, I guess, um, difficult car situation where, you know, we had only so many cars and like different sort of needs when it came to church. So she made the suggestion to my sister, well, would you like to come to church with me? My sister replied, oh, I can't do that. I'm sorry, I'm a Christian. Um, <laughs> to which my grandma said, well, actually, Catholics are Christians too, and they believe in the same God. And um, I should just point out at this stage, um, my sister, is really keen to assert that experience absolutely changed her life. And in terms of how she saw faith and other religions, you know, it made her really reflect actually a lot more. So I just wanna be clear that that was quite a foundational moment of change. Um, I've had moments like that myself. I actually, while I was getting ready today, decided to wear glasses. And the reason for that is um, being a blonde woman, there's been a couple of times at work where someone has said to me, Francesca, you look much more intelligent with glasses on. I'm like, thank you for that. But <laughs> again, it's just realizing that people are making these little assumptions about us every day. And how, how 
concerning that, you know, I'm going into meetings and people are thinking, oh, bimbo, until I've got glasses on, which is really irritating, but there you go. Um, one more example. This is a friend of mine um, in Australia. She is first-generation Australian, the same as me. My parents were also immigrants. They were from England, hers were from China. Uh, we found that our life stories ended up, you know, getting punctuated in very different ways. I never really got some of the same questions or sort of frustrations that she had. At uh, one time, I, we were at work and she sort of came in, she was a work colleague, and was like, um, I'm really, really cross. I said, Tina, what's happened? And she'd been in the elevator coming up to our office and had got chatting with um, the man standing next to her. I should just say, I know this might be quite dissimilar for many of you, but in Australia, we talk to people in the elevators in the morning. Um, <laughs> but um, so they got in this little dialogue and, um, you know, she was sort of like, how are you going? What did you do on the weekend? Great, fun. Um, when they got to the stop and she was getting out of the elevator, he said, by the way, I just have to compliment you. Your English is brilliant. And she was like, thank you. I did grow up here and go to an English school and at home we actually speak English, but great. So I think we're always, and you know, I'm saying these examples where maybe I've been the victim and not the perpetrator, but just to be clear, I have made many assumptions and we'll go into those a little bit later in this, in this talk. But I hope this sort of gives a little bit of a, um, a glimpse at the sort of unconscious bias that we might experience day to day. So why are we looking at this today? Um, I've given a little example when I was talking about Natalie's experience, the author of this book, A Church for the Poor. But the reason I really wanna dig into this is because I really think in how we practice our Christianity, both as individuals and as a community, we are really shaped by the culture that we've grown up in and that we live in. And I think we sometimes need to stop and challenge ourselves and say, so actually, is this the culture of Christ? What we've just been looking at it, the verse before, you know, being transformed to see the world like him? Or is this simply the culture that we know because it's what we're used to and what we're familiar with? And how we practice church, is it because, again, it's the culture of Christ and how church could or should be? Or is it what we're comfortable with and, yeah, what we've always known? Now, I have to say, in preparing for this sermon, I went and did a bit of research. Some of you might know I'm a researcher by trade, and so I hope you'll sort of indulge me a little bit with some statistics, because I love statistics. Um, but I was really interested to see, does the Church of England reflect the society of England and you know, the community that we, that we live in? And um, as a researcher, what we do when we do surveys is usually, obviously, unless you're doing a census, you can't survey the entire population of England, so we send out a sample. And we usually try and make sure the sample is pretty representative. You know, do we have um, pretty much what we know is the right income? Um, do we have a gender balance? Do we have a uh, geographical balance? And when we get the sample back, if it's inaccurate, we really question the data because we're like, well, actually, you know, this isn't reflective of the world, so we can't trust this. Now, I was to say, if I could get a sample of the Church of England, of how it looks right now, I would absolutely not trust the data because it doesn't look like the rest of the UK. And there are a few things in particular that when I was doing some research really, really struck out to me that I want to talk about today. And I will say there are actually other things that we're not going to touch on uh, that are very, very true as well, such as things like age and stage of life and whatnot that's very disproportionate. But the three things I wanted to flag. Firstly, 
The Church of England today is undeniably middle class to the degree that it doesn't reflect the broader population. So in 2015, YouGov, which is one of the biggest polling houses in the UK, did a survey of the British public and they found that nearly two in three practicing Christians um, were deemed middle class. They weren't even self-selecting that they were middle class. This is based on other factors, demographic factors, things like income, whatnot. So that was versus just 38% who could be classed working class. So you can see that already we have a big skew in terms of who relates to church or the Church of England and is attending. Tim actually presented some survey data last year, I don't know if you guys remembered, from a study called Talking Jesus. And I remember at the time there was one fact that really stood out to me and since then I've seen that pop up in research again. And that's as a church community in the Church of England, we are highly, highly educated. Uh, that's quite nice, actually, you know, when people sort of say Christians are a bit naive, they haven't actually maybe gone to university, it's nice to be able to rebut that, but it's also a little bit concerning that eight in ten practicing Christians have got a university degree or some sort of equivalent, um, I guess, what's what I'm looking for? Yeah, some equivalent sort of study or qualification, thank you, mind blank. Um, so, you know, again, that's really worrying because when you look at the broader population, this isn't reflective. Um, if you look at census data, I think it's sort of just under around 50% or thereabouts have a university degree. So we see that the church is highly, highly educated. And I think that that pops up in different ways, particularly um, as we'll talk about later, sometimes how we practice things like life groups, maybe some of our sermon material and whatnot, but it's something to be aware of. And finally, we're geographically unbalanced. Um, the church has become very, very urban, and if you're living in a more rural area, it's really difficult to get the same level of church life that we really take for granted living in a city. Uh, we went skiing last year as a church, it was absolutely brilliant, and we had a guest of us who came um, with his sister. His name was John, and he lived around the Yorkshire area. Uh, he was having to travel an hour and a half in a car every Sunday to go to a church that he felt a personal connection with. And Tim let me know there are some vicars in England who are literally looking after 17 churches. So they have no time to connect and engage with their population. They're literally going from pillar to post just with time to do communion and nothing really else. So why am I chucking all this data at you? You know, I'm sure I'm finding it much more fascinating than you, but the reason why I'm sharing it is because I think there is a big disconnect here with the gospel because I don't think that we see the gospel as being middle class for the highly educated and in some specific geographies of the world. The gospel is all inclusive. Church isn't a place that you go when you're established and you've got it all together. Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners. And I just wanna be really clear, I'm not, kind of saying here that um, the healthy are people who are middle class because that's not true. We all have it a little bit not together and that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying I'm for the people who don't have it together. A relationship with God and the promise of eternal life isn't an achievement we can earn. It's not a something that's a status point. It's something freely given and it's given to all who ask. You only need to look at the Gospels to see that God doesn't hang out at Starbucks with families who have 2.4 kids and a golden retriever. He hangs out with everyone, not just the well-to-do, but prostitutes, criminals, and the morally corrupt. 
Probably my favorite character in the Bible is Zacchaeus, who Jesus sees up a tree. He's this little short man who is absolutely despised in society. He's a tax collector. He's morally completely off the charts. And Jesus said, Zacchaeus, I see you. Come down there. I want to have dinner at your place. Not anyone else's place, your place. I absolutely love that story. Jesus' first disciples were the blue-collar workforce. Jesus himself was a carpenter. The word crowd, we often hear about crowds following Jesus around in the Bible. Um, That word okra in Greek literally translates into the rabble, the mob, the flotsam and jetsam of society. Even the language that Jesus used was designed to be understood. He didn't speak in really lofty theological terms, although he would if he needed to, if he was in a debate. The um, parables that he told were about really practical, tangible, down-to-earth things that we could connect with. Now, I'm not saying this to make us feel like we don't have a place. As I look around, I'm sure all of us feel a bit uncomfortable because I'm sure we're all relatively middle-class educated and in the south of England. So we're kind of ticking all those boxes that I said. But you know what, Jesus wasn't exclusive either. He hung out with the um, very respected in society, the educated, the elite. Those were his disciples too. He welcomed everyone. So we're talking about this today because I really want us to grapple with the fact that our church today, our church right here in St. Dionys, but also more broadly in England, probably isn't meeting the needs of a large portion of society. Imagine if you came from a slightly different background and you were trying to engage in our church life. And I just wanna say this really gently because I don't think any of this is necessarily wrong. I think there's definitely a place, but I think we just need to think about it a bit differently. You know, imagine coming to a fundraising ball that's black tie, if you've never had to use different sorts of cutlery, or going to a ski trip, or going to a week away with the church. Imagine going to a life group where actually the main event in the life group is a really intellectual, intellectual, theological discussion where actually it can be a little bit like, you know, whoever knows the most talks the most and you feel really isolated. Again, none of these things are bad and I'm not saying that we shouldn't do these things. I absolutely think growing in our faith and learning more about the Bible is critical, but we maybe just need to work a little bit harder to think about how we can engage a broader spectrum of community in different ways that might feel slightly more natural. The question I wanna ask us, are we tied to this way of doing church that we exist in right now? Are we willing to try things a little bit differently? One of my heroes of the faith, um, if we kind of think about it in that, that way, is William Booth who founded the Salvation Army back in I think it was, seven, no, 1878. And what I love about the Salvation Army is that it came from the Methodist Church, which actually had been quite a revolutionary church movement in its day. But William Booth, existing in that place and living in London, realized that actually they weren't meeting the needs of a large part of London. It had become a very middle-class church. And so again, it sort of swings and roundabouts sometimes. We see these great movements in history that then get a little bit more um, culturally, what's the word I'm looking for, a bit more dull or dulled down a wee bit. So William Booth really radically changed the way that church is done. And today I think, unfortunately, we maybe find the Salvation Army approach a little bit dated, a bit hard to connect to, but we can't underestimate the amazing impact that that had on history. 
When that was formed, it was incredibly practical. Uh, William set up shop in Whitechapel, and his philosophy was first soup, then soap, then salvation. It was very, very practical. But he also changed the way that church worked. It became very evangelistic in style, uh, very relatable, similar to how Jesus would talk. It became a language that people could actually understand. He changed the music, the way that they praised and worshipped again to make it more familiar to people. And even the army structure was incredibly intentional because it gave people a sense of belonging, a sense of meaning and purpose where they hadn't had that aspiration and that hope before. I um, ran some focus groups actually for the Salvation Army about five years ago in Sydney. And I was so moved. I spoke to about 30 non-Christians and they didn't have many nice things to say about churches, I must say. Um, but they loved the Salvation Army. And the language they used to talk about, the salvos, which is how we talk about them in Australia, uh, it was really lovely. They'd say things like, they're there when no one else is. They have amazing empathy. They're so kind. You know, they just, when they found out that they were a Christian movement, some of them didn't know. They were like, oh, that's amazing. You know, so the impact on society has been incredible. So I might, just as we move into the second part of the sermon, just ask you just to spend literally just a minute talking to the person next to you, potentially about some bias maybe you've had or something potentially in church life that, as I've been talking, has actually just made you think, oh, hang on a sec, that's interesting. Is that what I'm used to or is that from Christ? So maybe just spend a moment either thinking about that yourself or just the speaking to the person next to you. And um, just a flag, after that we're going to turn to Luke, which is on page 989. Okay, guys, I'm going to bring us back again now, but um, please feel free to continue those conversations later on as well. So if you'd like to turn to page 989 in your Bible, we're going to read Luke 14, um, and we're going to start from verse 12. So when you give a banquet, do not invite your friends or brothers or relatives or rich neighbors lest they invite you in return and you will be repaid. 
But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Instead, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those at the table heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of the Lord. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who'd been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you've ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out into the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. So I guess in the first section of the sermon, if we talked about having that awareness, and um, I guess some might even call it mindfulness um, of what's going on inside our minds and some of the bias that could exist. In this section, we're gonna look more at action. Um, continuing on from looking at bias, of course, but thinking about actually what do we want to do with this? So looking at the verse above, the question I want to ask and to pose to us today is who are you inviting to your party? Who are you inviting to your party? So the scripture I just read, I feel is quite self-explanatory. I don't think we necessarily need to do an exegesis and look through verse by verse by verse. As we've been talking about, we're very naturally inclined to invest in and give time to people who remind us of ourselves and who we can relate to and connect to. I mean, even in that verse, Jesus talks about that. He talks about relatives, neighbors, friends, those who we know intrinsically. And then in the remainder of the verse in the passage, we see actually the invitation being extended to people who are very, very different from ourselves. As Lydia spoke about last week, and I absolutely love this, who can we be investing in who maybe is just a little bit different to us outside of our sphere, that unlikely friend to have on our journey of life? I think sometimes as we step outside of our comfort zones, some of our thoughts and perceptions about things will be really challenged, and that's really healthy. So actually, one thing I wanted to share with you is some of my own bias and um, how through experience I've managed to overcome that a little bit. Um, and just share one thing that I do quite um, intermittently is volunteer with a homeless meal in London. Um, and I really love it because I feel the values of this meal fit very similar with my own values about community because it's not so much a meal where people come in and they sort of get their food and then they sit and they leave or get um, shelter afterwards. The meal is actually designed to really provide a space for community, a space for the guests to interact with each other and also to feel dignity and to feel love. And um, so all the volunteers are encouraged once you've served the guests to sit down and to speak to them and learn a bit about their story. Uh, the first time I went, I was absolutely terrified. I thought, I'm gonna have nothing in common with any of these guests. I don't know what I'm gonna talk about. 
So I just sort of hid behind the drinks table and poured Coca-Cola when people were asking for it and just kind of went, oh, no, help. Um, but eventually, as time went on, I got a bit more confident and went and sat down with the guests and had a chat. And um, what I learned really blew me away and just revealed to me how much bias I'd had about people who are homeless. Um, if you'll let me, I just want to tell you about three of the guests who I've met who I just think are just amazing people. Um, and for me, it's just revealed how much more we have in common, I guess, than we have not in common. Uh, the first was a lovely Portuguese man who was a botanist who actually had lived in many parts of the world, including Sydney, so we spoke about that. Very eloquent man, very soft-spoken, obviously very educated. Um, as we spoke, actually, I felt really, really sad because I didn't understand how he'd ended up on the streets. In talking to um, the host of the dinner, they let me know that he had had some issues of alcoholism and that had been sort of the, um, the journey there. But for me, it really challenged me that, um, again, I mean, this is really terrible to admit, but like I just didn't think anyone on the streets could be educated or have that eloquence, which is awful. And I have really repented of that. Um, another guest is called Katie. She's a lovely elderly Chinese lady. She's a grandma. Uh, she's just unbelievably kind, unbelievably warm. Uh, whenever you talk to her, she'll give you a compliment. She will give you a lot of life advice if you will let her, uh, which is really lovely as well. And she's always the last to leave because all of the volunteers just love talking to her and actually have so much love for her as well. Um, she's sadly a diabetic, as a lot of people who, um, who are homeless and rough sleeping are. Just because of the nature of their diet, they end up having a lot of high-calorie, high-sugar foods um, that just really aren't great in terms of battling things like diabetes. Um, the final guest is actually the one I've been challenged by the most. He's a guy our age. Um, his name's Martin, and he's really, really funny. Um, he spends a lot of his time just walking around the streets. So he has incredible knowledge around London, what it looks like, the geography. He's given me some great restaurant advice and ideas for what I should do on the weekends. Um, but also, I get so challenged when I talk to him because he's so intelligent and smart and sharp. And I just think to myself, you know, you're not different from me. I'm not smarter than you. I have no idea how you ended up here and I ended up there, but it's certainly not due to something that I caused. It's due to my life, the, the I guess, amazing family that I've had. But again, just really, really challenged me about the assumptions that I have. I mean, another book by um, the, the two authors that we mentioned was The Myth of the Undeserving Poor. And I think sometimes, unfortunately, that is an assumption that we have. This volunteering, even very infrequently, for me is a tiny, tiny way to be more connected with London, the city that I live in and the people that I share it with. Um, it helps me, and it's helped me hugely, I guess, to look past some of the bias that I might have and give me a lot more courage to step into situations um, that might feel a bit uncomfortable at first. So going back to the verse that I shared earlier, I just want to say again, who are we inviting to our parties? And that might be something very um, literal. It might for you be like, actually, am I holding an event that I can be a bit more inclusive in and actually look outside my sphere? Or it could actually be a little bit more metaphoric. So you could ask, who am I giving my time to? Who am I giving my energy to love? Am I being transformed to be more like Christ by what I think and act on? And I would really pray for each of us here, maybe to think of one small thing that we could do this week uh, myself, just this past week, I've been quite challenged as I've worked on this sermon. Uh, just going into work, actually, on Friday, I saw a girl stop next to um, a man sleeping rough. 
She'd bought him a coffee. They obviously had a connection. They knew each other. And she just stayed and talked to him for a few moments. And I thought, actually, maybe that's something that I could be doing a bit more. You know, I volunteered in quite a safe, you know, environment. But actually, now I have a bit more understanding, a bit more empathy. I should be stepping out and being more courageous in other ways. As we've discussed, Jesus had time for everyone. His heart was huge and his compassion was absolutely endless. And so to finish, I just, um, I talked about William Booth earlier. And I found a quote of his several years back that has really been very meaningful to me. And so I wanted to share it with you as we finish up. I will tell you the secret. God has all there ever was of me. There has been men with greater brains than I, even with greater opportunities. But from the day that I got the poor of London on my heart and caught a vision of what Jesus could do with me and with them, on that day I made up my mind that God should have all of William Booth there is. And if there's anything in the power of the Salvation Army, it is because God has had the adoration of my heart, all the power of the will, and the influence of my life. Let's pray together. God, we just welcome you in this place. Holy Spirit, we just welcome you. I pray that you would just be resting on each and every one of us. As we sung earlier, break our heart for what breaks yours. As we prayed earlier, would we be renewed by the transforming of our minds? Lord, we want to live your way. We want to be your hands and your feet in this earth. We want to live meaningful lives and be a generation that sees positive social change. Lord, I just pray that you would be present with us, that you'd just be maybe lightly just pressing on our hearts and showing us how we can be more transformed um, to the image of Christ. On such a, um, such a mind level, but also on such a heart and such a practical level as well. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you've saved us, that we are the sick as well, and that you've given us eternal life. We thank you for your love and your compassion. And we pray that we would even be able to show just a fragment of that to the community that we live in. In your holy name we pray. Amen.